Thank you for tuning in to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. You're about to hear a live sermon, which was recorded at our 11 a.m. contemporary service. We are thrilled to share it with you. Thank you for listening. So today we continue in our Lenten Sermon Series looking at stories of Jesus encountering outsiders. Last week, we had the opportunity to see Jesus dine, and I know you couldn't believe it, but Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. And we saw that the Pharisees, these great religious people, are looking in the window going, what does he think he's doing? Hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. But we see Jesus resetting, destabilizing the social uh, norms, the social ladder. We have to re-understand who's a part of the new community he comes to bring about, comes to invite even us into it. And so that changes everything. We've been looking at these great stories of outsiders, and today we're going to look at another story where Jesus encounters two outsiders. I do also want to highlight the children's question, which is, who is the greatest soul singer of all time? And there's candy waiting for the correct answer. I know you all know who it is, but um, uh, Lindsay's got candy for those who can answer it correctly. Who is the greatest soul singer of all time? But before I begin and read our scripture passage, I want to tell you a little little bit about what happened to me this week. Um, I like to run, uh, try to keep in shape, and, and I always listen to podcasts when I'm running. And so I was listening to one of my podcasts this past week, and I had to stop my run. I stopped dead in my tracks. And I was listening to this podcast it's with this guy named Adam Grant, who's an organizational psychologist from up at Penn, and talks a lot about leadership, organizational development, these kinds of themes. And he was interviewing this guy named Brad Bird, who works for Pixar, the movie studio. And Brad Bird told the story about how he came to work and really came to be a success at Pixar. And he says, back in 2000, Steve Jobs and this guy Ed Catmull um, hired him. You see, they had had three really successful movies. They'd had Toy Story 1 and 2, and then A Bug's Life. And they'd made a ton of money. But what they figured is they didn't want to rest on their laurels. They wanted to continue to move forward, to continue to innovate in animation. And this Brad Bird had this great vision for the future about what was possible in animation. He had this great vision. And so they hire him, and they want him to disrupt the way they've always done things. And he's got this high bar, this great vision. And basically, they think that um, with what they have available, that it would take $500 million and over 10 years to make his vision with animation a reality. $500 million and over 10 years. Needless to say, this wasn't realistic. So either he was not going to be able to do what, what he was called to do, what he was hired to do, or he had to find another way. And so Adam Grant is interviewing Brad, and he says, Brad, how did you do it? What did you do to pull it off? He says, well, I get hired at Pixar. He says, and I go around the company, and I get onto my team all of the outsiders. He says, he brings all of the outsiders onto his team. Adam Grant says, why did you look for the outsiders? He says, because they were willing to do things differently than the way we'd always done them. They were more creative. The outsiders, when they were brought onto the team, they had a sense of purpose. They had a sense of mission. They knew what we were about. They were outcasts from the others, but they found a home, a family. And what they pulled off, they created a movie in only two years. 
for less than $100 million, that that movie, The Incredibles, would go on to sell over $631 million at the box office and two Oscars. The outsiders did that. And I think about when Jesus encounters outsiders, there's kind of a same logic at work. He's calling outsiders in because this is a new community. We're going to do things differently. And because you were excluded and you were an outsider in the past, you understand that we're going to need to do things differently into the future. We're going to be on mission. We're going to have a sense of purpose. And so this is what we see. So let us look at a story where Jesus again encounters outsiders. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. While he, or while Jesus was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. And instantly, the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report of this spread throughout the district. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask that you might be our teacher in the next few moments, that we might see ourselves in this story. We might understand ourselves in some way as outsiders, and that might open us up to your healing touch, your presence in our lives, that you might speak by your spirit a word that only you can speak. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In this passage, we have what I would call a healing sandwich. We have one story where this father comes and asks for healing to raise his dying daughter. Comes to Jesus, and as they're on their way to the leader's house, this woman intervenes and touches the the hem of Jesus' garment. And then, as soon as she's healed, then it goes back to the ending or the conclusion of that first story. And Matthew puts both of these stories together, I think, for a reason. He wants us to look and compare them. Where are they similar and where are they different and what can we, what can we learn from them? Well, where they are similar is we have two people that are in desperate need. We see two people who know they need help. They cannot help themselves. His daughter is dying. Oh, help me. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. Oh, help me. I need your healing touch. I need to be made well. I can't help myself. It's a powerful moment when you come to a place in your life where you need to be made well. When you recognize this fact. I have a friend who does a lot of work with 12-step programs, programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon, so on and so forth. And I was talking to him one day and I said, and he was telling me, you know, Before you can ever begin the 12-step program, you have to come to step zero. I said, what step is that? He said, oh, step zero? That's when this stuff has got to change. He actually doesn't use the word stuff. It's a little bit more emotionally articulate what he says. But 
there's this realization that my life is out of control, that I need help, that I need to be made well, that I cannot help myself. I had a, a friend named Brad who was probably one of the best guitar players I've ever been around. And he had toured with some really well-known um, uh, musicians around the world. And I once asked him, I said, how did, did you become such a great guitar player, Brad? He says, well, Jeff, that's a long story. And I said, well, share it with me. So, well, back when I was growing up, my father was an alcoholic and he was emotionally abusive, uh, both and physically abusive. And so when he would go into his tirades, I would escape to my bedroom, I would lock the door and I would pull out my guitar and I'd begin to play. I'd try to drown out what was happening and I would practice. So eventually I went to college, I met a girl, we fell in love and we got married. After a couple years of marriage, I discovered that she was having an affair with me and we got a divorce. My life went into a tailspin. I put the, the guitar away. I didn't even think about it. I was depressed. I was angry at myself. I was shameful. So this went on for years. His life was spiraling down until he finally went to a therapist. He went to somebody asking for help. And so he sat in there and they met time and time again, and he would go over his story again and again. He would rehash his life. He'd say, I had an alcoholic and abusive father. I was betrayed by my wife. My life is in a tailspin. And he would go over and over again. And finally, the therapist she said, I understand where you come from. I understand what has happened to you, but I've got a question for you. Do you really want to be made well? And when she asked him that, he said it woke him up. He said, that is my past, but I want things to be different. I want to be made well. I want to be made whole again. Coming to that place where we realize and recognize our need, we want to be made well. And both of these people, this leader from the synagogue, this woman, they recognize their need. They want to be made well. But they come in two very different ways. They have two different styles of asking for help. Matthew tells us, a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before him. This man of authority, this man of power comes in with a spirit of humility. He needs help and so he throws himself at the foot of Jesus. He kneels, help me. This man's a powerful man. This man's probably a prideful man. But he'd come to the end of his rope, and so he kneels at the feet of Jesus and says, I can't help myself. I need you to help me. It's true. Even the most, the most important of us, the most powerful, the, most, the healthiest, the richest, all of us at some point will come to a place in our lives where we have to say, I need help. I cannot help myself. That's why I've heard it said, don't ever trust a Christian leader who doesn't walk with a limp. A limp is where you acknowledge that you've been bruised in the past, you've been broken, you bear some scars. And it's important we as followers of Christ walk with a limp. We acknowledge that we have needed healing in the past. We've been hurt, we've been sick, we've been ill. We've needed healing and we bear some of those scars. But those scars can be encouragement to others that the hurt will not have the last word, but that Jesus wants to heal us. And so he comes in and he says, would you heal my daughter? Would you heal her? It's interesting that in his second letter to the church in Corinth, the apostle Paul, 
in the 12th chapter, he begins to talk about all the great experiences he's had, all his spiritual gifts, these amazing moments in his life, and he's really celebrating, and you begin to think he's, he's kind of gloating a little bit. And then he turns, he takes kind of a left turn, and he begins to talk about what he experiences as a thorn in the flesh, brings him pain and agony, anxiety. And he says, I've asked God to take it away from me three times, he says, and God refuses. He says, I bear this thorn in the flesh. I'm walking with a limp. Why, he says, because he says, God has said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. Our limping can be an opportunity for God to work, for God's power to be shown and expressed in our lives. When we acknowledge we hurt, that's when we allow God's healing presence to come in. And this man comes to Jesus. He kneels down, he says, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And so as this man, this leader of the synagogue and Jesus and his disciples and the crowds, they go on the move and they start to head to the man's house. And there over in the shadows, a woman's been watching. She's been standing, waiting for her opportunity. She sneaks up behind Jesus and she touches the hem of his garment. She's healed. She touches the hem of his garment. This would have been a big move. It's more than just her looking for physical healing. She has more than a medical condition. She's had a, a hemorrhage for 12 years. If you know your book of Leviticus, you'll know that if you have bleeding, you become ritualistically unclean. Not only are you unclean, but everyone you touch and anything you touch also becomes ritualistically unclean. So there's a good chance that this woman hadn't physically been touched in 12 years. She's hiding out in the shadows. She's an outsider. She's an outcast to the community. Oh, think about the, the physical, the psychic, the social pain that she feels. Oh, but then she shows great courage. She sneaks up there and touches the hem of his garment. Oh, I need to be made well. I need to be made well. What courage to cross those, that social chasm the ostracization, say, oh, I need to be well. I'm going to touch the hem of his garment. And so Matthew puts these two stories, the story of humility and the story of courage together. I think he does because he understands we need ourselves to have humble courage. The humility to acknowledge that we need healing and the courage to ask for it. That's what humble courage is. It's recognizing that you need healing, that you need help but having the courage to ask for it. The leader of the synagogue has the humility to throw himself at the feet of Jesus and the courage to say, come and raise my daughter from the dead. That's a courage. This woman has the humility to, to know she's sick. She needs to be made well, but she also has the courage to touch the hem of his garment. See, we need both courage and humility we need humility that goes along with courage. See, humility without courage can retreat into fear. It can, it can become timidity. It can be, even become self-loathing. Humility without courage, you need them together. 
But courage without humility can become recklessness. It can become even foolishness. We need humble courage. These two need each other. And so when we approach Jesus, we need humble courage too. We need the humility to acknowledge we need healing and the courage to ask for it. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French inventor, entrepreneur, scientist, and philosopher said this, Jesus is the God whom we can approach without pride and whom we can humble ourselves without despair. Jesus is the God whom we can approach without pride and whom we can humble ourselves without despair. When we come before Jesus, we need not despair. We can be humble without despairing. And in both situations, Jesus miraculously brings healing. Now, a lot of people struggle with this. They say, is it just a metaphor? Is it a social principle? Is, there just, is this something, just a moral lesson that I'm supposed to apply to my life? He didn't really raise this girl from the dead. He didn't really heal this woman's bleeding. I said, well, it kind of depends on who you believe Jesus to be. It depends who you believe Jesus was and is. You see, if, if the church is correct, for 2,000 years, that in Jesus, mysteriously, that the God who created the cosmos, that gave us the breath of life, is inhabiting Jesus, then raising one girl from the dead and healing some bleeding is not a problem. But then it depends who you count Jesus to be. And the church for 2,000 years has said, that God who created the world is incarnate is in Jesus in some mysterious way, that he healed. And I think Matthew took it seriously too. Why? Because in verse 26, Matthew writes, and the report of this spread throughout the district. This was a, this was a novel occurrence. This was newsworthy. This was something you went home and you, you told your, your wife, your spouse, your friends, your kids, you're not gonna believe what I saw today. This man named Jesus Raised a girl from the dead, healed a woman with blood. Remember, she used to be in the shadows. Well, now she's come out and she's a part of the community. Oh, can you believe it? But this can blow us away. It, it, it could blow people away back then and it can blow us away even today. I have a friend of mine who goes to church in Atlanta. And he goes to a church where they tend to emphasize the, maybe the spiritual meaning of a lot of these passages in the New Testament, or the, meta, uh, the metaphorical meaning of them. And they go to a church where this pastor's a really good preacher, and he preached on this text that I preached on today. But he made the point that the point uh, that we should really take away from this passage is that this woman felt self-empowered. It's a message of self-empowerment, that she was willing to cross these social boundaries and touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And my friend's wife was a little dubious about this interpretation. So after the service, she finds the preacher. She asks him, she says, if the, if the only message of this story is one of self-empowerment, does it matter that Jesus was even there? And the preacher says, well, I, you know, I guess I'd have to, to think about it for a minute. As my friend and his wife are walking away, he turns to his wife he says, I don't know about that preacher, but I've heard Sam Cooke sing, touch the hem of his garment. 
And that story's about a heck of a lot more than that. It's about a woman who is sick, who's been socially ostracized. She's been an outcast living in the shadows, never been touched, and she's been healed. Her world has been flipped upside down. She's been brought in. She's been made well. She's been made whole. Everything has changed in her life. Jesus has healed her. Now, you all know that Sam Cooke is the greatest soul singer who's ever lived. Sam did write a song about this story called Touch the Hem of His Garment. It's interesting that in this song, it's a short song. It's about two minutes and three seconds long. He only sings the chorus three times. The first and second time he sings, she said, if I could touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made whole. She said, if I can touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made whole. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made whole. And as Sam sings this for the first two verses and the the first two choruses, it's like he's describing the scene. He sings in the third person about her touching him. He's sitting there. He can see Jesus. He can see the woman. He can see the crowds. But if you pay careful attention, if you listen closely, he sings the chorus a third time. And Sam has been changed by this story, by the time it comes to the third chorus. He doesn't say, she said. He says, I said, if I could touch the hem of, not of his garment, but of your garment. It's gone to a song about a story. It's gone into being a prayer. I said, if I could touch the hem of your garment, I know I would be made whole. And there is the gospel in a nutshell that we have to go from seeing this story to seeing ourselves as a part of it, to seeing ourselves as outsiders, as Jesus coming to get us and bring us in, to acknowledging, to have the humble courage to acknowledge that we need healing, we need help, and then the courage to ask for it and to receive it. We have to see that we're all outsiders so that when we do, We open ourselves to the healing touch, to touch the hem of his garment that Jesus invites us to. And that's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that she did touch the hem of your garment, became a model, an image of how each of us needs to have the humble courage, the humility to recognize our need and the courage to ask for your healing help. We thank you that we are a part of a church that is about just that. May we help each other on this journey of faith. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the RPC Sermon Series podcast. If you'd like more info about Roswell Presbyterian Church, check out our website at roswellpres.org.